Hello and welcome back to a very special episode of Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death. This is um, the first episode that Meredith and I are in the same room. Look at this audio. <laughs> so it's very, very exciting. And to commemorate this this amazing you know, circumstance, uh, we are going to be talking about a very interesting set of serial killers but before we do that meredith you want to talk about uh give us a recap yeah last week we wrapped up our two-part discussion on how chicago's unique blend of cultural identities political clout and status as a cruising destination for the midwest all contributed to shaping gacy's crimes and contributing to his basically getting away with it for over six years and this week we're going to be talking about the ripper crew a name that should be infamous in Chicago, but for reasons we're going to go into in this very episode, have very little resonance because the Chicago media mostly ignore these crimes because of their extremely gruesome nature and a competing news story of a much more PG-13 quality, the Tylenol Killer. Do you remember ever even hearing about the Ripper Group? No. Um, Although many of these murders actually took place while I was alive, uh, the Ripper crew did not have the same kind of cultural resonance that John Wayne Gacy did. And I'm thinking maybe it was because the attacks were so brutal, or maybe because many of the victims were black sex workers, and therefore treated as less deserving of sympathy than other victims. Or maybe it was simply the fact that the Tylenol case was easier for the media to sell. Yeah, for whatever reason, the Tylenol case, as soon as it came onto the scene, the media decided this is the horse that we are going to be betting on, and they ran with it, and they completely forgot about the Ripper crew. Now, when we talk about the Ripper crew, if there was ever a need for a trigger warning, it would be this episode and the one coming up. The Ripper Crew, a group of four West Chicago-slash-suburban degenerates, led by Robin Gecht, who... Let's just get this out of the way right now. Is the epitome of a disgusting human being. But just as an overview of what we're about to cover here, the Ripper crew was found responsible for the brutal deaths of 18 women from May of 1981 to October of 1982. We're talking about basically a year and a half. The victims were ritualistically tortured, raped, cannibalized and their breasts were severed for the construction of a supposed satanic altar i don't want to have to repeat that sentence but i feel like i have to so that it can sink in but maybe i don't no i (laughs) i've read a lot of horror novels in my day surprise surprise and sometimes the saving grace of those books is that whenever it gets a little too intense Mm -hmm. i can take that step back and remember hey it's just a story learning about what the ripper crew did was horrible because i can't take that step back and put distance between me and the suffering that these women went through for some reason my mirror neurons will not stop firing and every time that they describe in any any publication or or blog what happened to these women i find myself cringing like i do the yeah. shoulders like so Meredith, like I, I i'm not i'm not of the female persuasion um and i don't want to pretend like i can you know sympathize with you know like any type of pain that these women must have gone through but i am a pretty chesty man okay mm-hmm. and every time i heard about like 
just the severing and we're gonna get into some really gruesome details about what this crew did it just it made my chest hurt you know and i it this is this is a lot so again trigger warning here for everyone uh we will try to make sure that we are not uh just being gruesome to be gruesome we're going to be very factual about this and you know just for everyone to know too we are only covering the bios of the Ripper crew in this episode. Next episode is where we'll actually go into the murders themselves. But this is undoubtedly one of the most deadly serial killer groups that has killed within one of the shortest periods of time, averaging basically a victim per month. These murders are gory. And so that we don't spend all this time talking about the murderers and not the murderers or how they were formed, which is what everyone does when they talk about them, we're going to save, like I said, the murders themselves for part two. But listen, you have to know the context of who these guys are for the murders to become real. These murders are so gruesome, so disgusting, it's really easy to forget that these were actual human beings, actual Chicagoans doing this. And we can't forget that because... When Then we learn nothing about how to prevent this in the future, basically. And so we're going to really delve into the psychology. And, you know, I think for myself, I've known about the Ripper Crew for a long time. This is the deepest dive that I've ever done personally on the bios of these guys. And I'm actually really grateful for having done it because I feel like I understand what happened in a much more real way yeah. than kind of, I don't know, like just... It, having it feel like I just watched a horror film. You know what right. I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. It's sensationalized. So you have that background now. So yeah. It's a little bit more real. Yeah. And if you're asking yourself, how the fuck was it possible that a woman a month was being murdered with that level of mutilation without getting caught? Well, it's a theme we've been hitting for the last two murders we covered. And they were going to be finishing off here but I don't think we're ever going to really completely finish off with this theme. Yeah, for this entire series, we've been talking about Chicago in the 1970s and 80s. During these years, there were between around 800 to 900 murders reported in the city each and every year. And as we've learned, location matters. Murder victims that are found in one specific neighborhood, suburban city, or even state don't register in other neighborhoods, cities, or states. Because of that, similar types of attacks can easily go undetected and simply add to the year's deadly tally. The Ripper crew benefited from this by mostly focusing their attacks on Black and Latino women far away from their suburban homes. When a couple of victims were both tied to Wrigleyville, police figured that they were looking for a Wrigleyville killer and so on. One name that comes up again and again as being instrumental to the capture of the Ripper crew is Lorraine Borowski. As you can probably guess from her name, she was a woman of Polish descent. Big surprise. Yeah. This means that she was white, and partially because of that, her disappearance and murder was, and still is, widely covered in the yeah. news, while other known and named victims are not. Yeah. And before we get too much further in, let's do a quick recap of the Chicagoland areas that we've mapped out so far so that we can build on that context here. In our first episodes, we talked about a few of our western suburbs, including Aurora, a prosperous blue-collar city with a substantial Latino population, which was suffering from a recent and massive loss of jobs as a result of the push to offshore manufacturing in the 1980s. 
Dugan terrified the Aurora community with a series of brutal abductions and rapes. At the same time, Lyle and Naperville, located just southwest of Aurora, continued to be prosperous and populated with former Chicagoans who had fled city life for the perceived safety of the suburbs. Dugan shocked that community when he kidnapped and murdered a child from her Naperville home, and it kicked off a decades-long miscarriage of justice during which two Latino men from Aurora were falsely convicted and put on death row for the murder that Dugan, a white man, had committed. With John Wayne Gacy, we talked about what was a suburb in the 70s and is now within the city limits, Norwood Park Township slash the O'Hare neighborhood. And we specifically talked about how Gacy's residence in that area insulated him from suspicion when young men and boys were going missing across the city of Chicago. And now we're just going straight south from Gacy and talking about the Ripper crew. So, you know, if you look at a map, you can draw a really easy oval around this entire area that covers all three of these killers. And then you can draw an even smaller oval that connects the four main culprits that were in the Ripper crew itself, starting in Villa Park, which, again, if you look at this map, they're all next to each other. And Chicago, I think, is different than a lot of other metro areas because all of the suburbs are very close together, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like, you know, Colorado where you have, like, mountains separating the suburbs, right? Um, These are all kind of like... Anyone who's been here knows you you go five miles in Chicago or in the suburbs, you're going to go through five different suburbs, right? Um, and then if you go to the very far end of the Oval to get to where, you know, Robin Gecht and Edward Spritzer were, you're back in the city, right? Yeah. Um, on the northwest side. So you're really talking about that sweet spot of the near western suburbs and the northwest side of Chicago, right? The research for this episode comes mostly from a legendary book, Deadly Thrills by J. Slade Fletcher. And that's actually because there aren't any other books on these guys. (laughs) But this book is controversial, okay? So why is it there's not a lot more about these guys, right? I think for people who are really into serial killers, and again, that's a loaded term, and I mean that from an inquisitive place and not a worshiping place, uh, we know that there's a curve grading murderers in media. The more gruesome and the more grisly the case is, sure, you're going to have more interest, you're going to have more books, but there's a tipping point, Where's the tipping point? (laughs) So (laughs) there are countless murderers that, yes, did horrible, disgusting things, but they're somewhat more palatable for the media. Ted Bundy was the perfect murderer for the media. Sure, did he commit atrocious, disgusting crimes and was a young Republican? Yes. But was he deemed attractive? I don't know. As a gay man, I can't figure that part out completely. Maybe you can provide a little bit more insight on this, Meredith. I can confirm that Ted Bundy was not an attractive man. Thank God. Okay. Maybe he was one of those people who you have to see in person. (laughs) But yeah, every news piece, every documentary and film adaptation insists that he was a handsome man as if it is somehow amazing that a serial killer did not have a hideous face. And I think you start to realize that the media needs that, right? Yeah. Because we're going to see here that you need to have that juxtaposition. The Ripper crew committed acts so ghastly 
And as people were so hideous that they were not ready for prime time, right? There wasn't something juxtaposing the viciousness of their crimes to catch on to and therefore make it appealing because it was just all ugly, right? I mean, when we see the people that we're really, you know, that the media loves to talk about and that in turn, you have tons of books on them and movies and, you know, who's that one creepy little kid that was in High School Musical... Zach Efron. There you go, right? <laughs> Zach Efron playing you like on yep. Netflix, right? That happens because the media is able to say like, wow, look how disgusting this was. But you're surprised because it's Zach Efron. Like with Gacy, the media had an easy tagline when they learned he had sometimes dressed as a clown for kids' parties. Killer clown. That's the perfect headline and folks still use it to sell books and generate clicks. Yeah. It's the hook. Yeah. Without that ingredient, we just have ugly people doing ugly things. And there's no wow factor. There's no easy tagline. So, because of that, we only have the one book to go on. And before we even begin, I need to talk about this book. Um, I actually read this book years ago in its paperback form. I think it only exists in paperback. Hmm. And Meredith, when, when you and I had talked about doing this episode... I could have sworn that I owned it. Do you still own yours? I do. (laughs) Um, I got it from thriftbooks.com back when we were first working on this project, and I pulled it off the shelf when we were preparing for this episode. Wow. Yeah, I see it. Okay. Well, just to let you know, this book that you have in your possession is now a fucking collector's item, okay? It's no longer in print, and the only remaining copies are going from anywhere between $50 and $200. I had to take my happy ass down to Harold Washington Library uh, to get a copy, which only one is allowed for distribution. They can't find it, right? And the other two have to be checked out as reference books. So I sat down and read it there. I am so sorry. (laughs) If I had known... If I had known that's where you're going down to the library, I would have said, like, just take my copy. I had no idea. Uh, that's cool. But the fact that this book was so hard to get yeah. made me finally look into the author herself, okay? The author of this book is J. Slade Fletcher, and Miss Fletcher herself is super cool. She actually wrote two true crime books, but this is definitely her most well-known. She was actually a career police officer with the Chicago Police Department, and I think this is really cool. She is the first woman to work patrol in the Chicago Police Department's history. I did find a defunct Facebook page for her because I was going to like try to send her a little like fan mail, whatever, but it does not seem to be much in operation now, Mm -hmm. and there wasn't much else. Still, though, we need to give her kudos for being an OG female true crime buff. That being said, though, (laughs) she may have been an amazing police officer, but she's no psychologist or expert on human sexuality by any stretch of the imagination, so if you're about to read this book and you have any you know, contemporary knowledge of human sexuality or psychology, please do not read this book for that purpose whatsoever. Uh, Throughout the book, Jay seems to be obsessed with pawning off Robin Gecht as being a sexual deviant as an explanation for his crimes, namely that he's bisexual. 
Meredith, you read this book. Do you remember any of this being super problematic? Like the whole thing. Yeah. By today's standards, this book is written in what you might say is a wildly offensive <laughs> manner. Yeah. <laughs> Deadly Thrills is as much pro-police propaganda as it is a true crime novel. Yes. Right? Yeah. I. Uh, this is 100% true. Yes. Yes. She goes into detail about how journalists and lawyers are just the worst. Yes. While police officers are bleeding hearts who are desperately trying to save innocent lives every day. Yeah. All of this while describing sex workers with complete disdain. Yeah. And focusing on the young, pretty, suburban, white victim while glossing over everyone else. Yeah. Even the surviving victim who provided crucial clues that led to the capture of these monsters. And what was the deal with the descriptions of Robin Gett in this book? (laughs) She has some kind of issue with diminutive men. Um, and it loves her a big Chicago police officer. I think it's, you know, like one of my favorite words that I learned in undergrad was hagiography, mm-hmm. which is what they call like a biography of a saint, right? Oh. Yeah, right? And so it, uh, use it. Sprinkle it in your conversations. It's great, okay? <laughs> but it's basically like a hagiography for this type of Chicago police officer that we all know, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of like is like big and like kind of, you know, John Candy looking, yeah. right? Yes. Um, that she loves, mm-hmm. right? And this is really kind of like the, the, if if she could have built a boob altar <laughs> to these police officers, but she is obsessed with juxtaposing that image with talking about how small and delicate Robin Gecht is. I quote. Despite his small stature and his delicate appearance and his lack of money, Robin had always been able to attract women, insert question mark. In another classic J.S. Fletcher line, she says that this is all evidence of small man syndrome. She's obsessed with calling him little. Now, he was five foot seven, mm-hmm. and the rest of the crew was about five foot nine, mm-hmm. but What's the average height of someone from Chicago? I actually looked a little into this because I wanted to know, right? Because yeah. I was like, I, I'm i not an exceptionally tall man, but I've never felt like like people in Chicago were super tall. You know no. what I'm saying? Um, I felt like that when I go to Utah, which you know, not to, you know, put you on blast here, but your husband is from Utah and he's exceptionally tall. Fun little family history about uh, Frank's family. He has, has some recent immigrants in the family from Germany. And his German grandmother, or great-grandmother, I'm not, I'm not totally sure, um, was from the old country yeah. and was exceptionally tall. Oh, wow. And once in, like, a generation afterwards is another person exceptionally tall. Oh. And so Frank won that lottery for his generation. Wow. Okay. Both of his brothers are average height. Yeah. And the rest of the family also is average height. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for those of you listening, he is, do you mind saying how tall he is? He's 6'4". He's 6'4". So you, you notice him very much so. Yes. Uh, but... Again, Robin Gecht, five foot seven. We're not talking about someone exceptionally short here. And looking up the averages, the average height in Illinois 
is five foot seven or five foot eight. We're not talking about we're not a tall people. You know what I'm saying? So if you're coming out here looking for, you know, basketball playing babies, you know, go to Utah, right? <laughs> According to this map from the New York Times, Montana, Wyoming, any of those states. Uh, but out here, not so much. Again, she's also really obsessed about talking about the reason that he's committing these crimes. And I think that's the offensive part, yeah. right? Because she's saying he has this short man bisexual syndrome mm-hmm. that's driving him, which we know is not true whatsoever. Right. So, yeah, we need to make sure that we, we, we just put out there right now, even though, you know, this author is probably a badass, you know, like as, a you know, the first woman to be on patrol and all these other kind of things. Please don't read her for, you know, like any type of psychological or human sexuality insight whatsoever. You know, she also quotes from FBI Special Agent Sigalski, who Fletcher tells us is about six foot of pure Midwestern beef, that, quote, the little man has a perception that because of his diminutive statue, he isn't going to be viewed as tough or strong. When you see one of those cars that's all jacked up in the fog and full of tassels and decorations, you rarely see a really big, really tough guy driving a car like that. End quote. <laughs> Meredith, <laughs> do you think there's anything to this? There's something there. Okay, okay. There's something. Yeah. Um, Special Agent Sigulski is showing his hand in that comment, in that quote. He believes that being or appearing tough and strong is or should be important to all men. And that is coming from an honor culture perspective. Yeah. Where good men, and that's in quotes, mm-hmm. are strong and they can protect their families with that strength. Full stop. Yeah. In an honor culture, there's nothing worse than to be a man who is short and slim. So it must be surprising to a person from such a perspective to see someone who has confidence and manipulative skills that have nothing to do with being physically imposing. I'm so glad that you know about these things. <laughs> helps me understand it because yeah i i think but that's that's kind of like where this book becomes so dangerous because they're trying to explain away the manipulation and the the confidence that this person has as being these kind of like mere you know aspects of, of his short statue when no like he was that way because he's a fucking psychopath right. you know what i'm saying right. like like let's let's get to the, the cut to the chase here this didn't you know? happen because he wasn't a muscular tall guy right. right right yeah well let's get started on who these diminutive men were first there are four members of the ripper crew robin gecht edward spritzer and the Cocorales brothers Andy and Tommy. But let's be clear, there is one leader. Robin Gecht is the leader. He was the mastermind, and the other three were basically just his accomplices. Robin was also the only legit adult. We're not talking legal adult here, but we're talking like not being over the age of 22, etc., right? Mm-hmm. He was 30 when the crimes were committed. He was married and had kids, had his own place, car, a business. The others didn't have jack shit. Edward was only 21 and lived with his parents. The Cucurales brothers, God helped them, and we're going to get into why God needs to help these two. Uh, They were just teenagers, but mentally, 
They were probably like 10 or 11. Robin is also the Gacy Connect. Robin used to work for Gacy as an employee. This is 100% corroborated and accepted by almost everyone. I know you have some thoughts that you're going to share with us about this. Uh, This all happens when Robin Gecht was a teenager growing up on the northwest side of Chicago near Belmont Cragen. I actually used to live in Belmont Cragen. I will try not to be triggered, but I'll talk about it later. Yeah, I want to hear it. (laughs) Which, how does a city boy get mixed up with an O'Hare contractor? Why, the porous nature of the city limits. Uh, But before we get into that, do you want to talk to us about the contentious connection with Gacy? Yeah, so I was curious on like where you were able to corroborate the Gacy connection because I really couldn't find something that was like a smoking gun. Yeah. I couldn't find like a, a employee records list or, or anything. Maybe you found it, but uh, there was a mention of like Gecht being employed by Gacy in some court records and I couldn't find that. Yeah, I know that the majority of the roads lead back again to... Deadly Thrills. They lead back to this book, right? And I will freely admit, having read it again Mm -hmm. recently now, um, there's a lot of problematic pieces of information in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Misquoting where people are from, Mm -hmm. um, even their actual nationality, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's, we'll get into that later. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was incorrect or if this was just kind of like a rumor that Fletcher heard from one of her cop buddies and then just decided to put it in the book. And from that, everyone went off on it. But, you know, for people listening to this, this is something that's always talked about when they talk about the Ripper crew is that Robin Gecht knew John Wayne Gacy. Like the timelines do add up. Yes. Right? They, They do correspond. Also, we talked a little bit about Karen Hornet and like how you become your abuser, etc. There's a little bit of that here because when Robin grows up and becomes an adult, what does he become? He's a fucking contractor too, right? What does he end up doing with his employees? He forces them into this really toxic and manipulative abusive relationship which maybe he also found himself in with Gacy but I, I can't say with any 100% certainty that this happened but this is something that people do say got it okay yeah. well what do we definitively know about him <laughs> We know that he was born at Illinois Masonic Hospital on the northwest side of Chicago on November 30th, 1953. That also means definitively that he was a fucking Sagittarius and hot take for the day. <laughs> Sages are fucking crazy. All right. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to debate that. It's, okay. so we're just going to accept that as fact and move on. Okay. Uh, we also know for a fact that he was raised on the northwest side of Chicago on the yeah. corner of Elston and diversity in the West Lakeview Avondale area where he lived as the oldest of seven kids and his parents in a two-bedroom apartment. The family was hopelessly poor and they lived in what I would call... But I'm not white, so I... (laughs) So that's what I'm gonna... (laughs) I'm gonna hand this over to you to talk about. I would call this hillbilly Chicago. I don't know if that's the correct term. But please talk to us a little bit about 
white poverty. White, white, there you go. White <laughs> poverty in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, so yes, there are white people living in poverty in Chicago, mm-hmm. but there's not as many as there used to be. Right. Gentrification pushes out poor folks of all ethnicities, and because redlining was a practice that was deliberately focused on black communities, white Chicagoans were never really squeezed into specific geographic areas. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's not the poor white neighborhood. Yeah. So when rents get too high, many Chicagoans take off to less expensive suburbs because there's not the redlining affecting them. They right. have that option to leave. Yeah. Today, there are trailer parks within an hour's drive of the city. But by and large, majority white communities within the city limits are wealthier than other communities. Yeah. So like I said before, I lived in Belmont Cragen for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Belmont Cragen is on the northwest side of the city. It is today mostly a Latino, a Mexican, and Puerto Rican neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I grew up in it when it was almost all Puerto Rican, right? Mm-hmm. And we were like one of the few Mexican families in the neighborhood. Oh, wow. But there were these random white families that had stayed, right, that we all knew were economically doing worse than we were, right? And I remember being very confused by that. Okay, because, you know, you look on, on, you know, the news and da 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 and, like, white families and, you know, like, they're supposed to be, like, balling, right? Yes. But these families, I would be like, wait a second. (laughs) What's going on there? What's going on there, right? You know, I I knew that a lot of them were more kind of Eastern European, Mm -hmm. but some of them, the ones that weren't ethnic, right? Because, you know, like, ethnic white Chicagoans also have a different reality as well, right? But there were some that had kind of an Appalachian quality to them, mm. which I don't know. Like, can you speak to that? <laughs> I'm not calling you Appalachian. <laughs> no, I mean, like my family. I think we talked about this like the other day. It's yeah. like more from the family that I know of came yeah. more from Iowa. Yeah. But that makes sense. I mean, Ohio is just as close as Iowa, just right. on the other side. Yeah, yeah. And for people coming and looking for jobs and getting those jobs and settling, and then maybe the jobs go away, and then they are they end up staying here. here. That yeah. would that would make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Well, that's definitely the type of Chicago that Robin grew up in. Yeah. Um. You know, and back then, Elson and Diversity, even though now, well, back when I was growing up, it was a Puerto Rican neighborhood, but mm-hmm. now I think it's now gentrified into like kind of a hipster neighborhood i have not been out there in a long oh, okay. time it's one of those like intersections with six streets going through yeah, yeah, yeah. It. it's a six corners yeah yeah yeah. yeah. back yeah. in the 70s robin was just six years old when something very traumatic happened to him he was watching his three-year-old brother when the younger boy ran out into the street and got hit by a car mm-hmm. he survived but suffered brain damage this is obviously the opposite of the way the story typically goes. Obviously, we know the serial killer holy link of animal torture, pyromania, bedwetting, and traumatic brain injury. But spoiler alert, we don't ever really get to any of these with Robin, okay? All of this is important in setting the stage for who he is because, like the story about his younger brother, we get like glimpses of trauma. We get glimpses of things that might help explain it. But nothing as clear as we do with, like, a Gacy, right? Or even with a Dugan. Also, let me throw a wrench right into this right now. Um, Gecht supposedly was Jewish. Mm -hmm. This also comes from the Fletcher book, right? Right. We don't know if this is 100% true. 
But if she does give us a glimpse into why this might have been somewhat influential in his life. Basically, according to Fletcher, the family was Jewish but was not observant. And the father had a weird rule that no holidays would be celebrated, right? Yeah. So no Hanukkah, no Christmas, no anything, right? And according to Fletcher, right? And again, we take everything she says with, you know, a pinch of salt, right? But according to Fletcher, this may have impacted him in some way. But regardless, what we do know is that the family was poor. Yes. That That is something that's been also corroborated by people that knew the family growing up. Yeah. Seven kids in two rooms. Like, there's... Yeah, yeah. There's no way that was the plan. Yeah. Fletcher includes the information about him being Jewish as maybe a hint as to why it is that he is the way that he is. But we don't ever really get any information that helps fit a narrative for him, right? In general, with Gecht, you get a piece and are like, here, let's start here. But then it always feels like a false start. So one start that we do have to maybe go off of was the fact that he did come from a pretty poor family. And this does kind of help start a chain that we can start linking to future things. But it's not always a satisfying one. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Speaking from personal experience, if we're talking poor, most of my friends in elementary and high school were also poor. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as I know, none of them have become killers. (laughs) So, so maybe there's a chain link there, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. And if we're talking about like white trash, like really trashy, reality TV trashy, I knew a couple of kids from families like that too. And they also did not turn out to be killers. Yeah. Honestly, the worst that has happened with the kids from poor, white, and trashy families that I knew in the 80s and 90s is that a few of them have already died. Oh, shit. It's shocking because the oldest of us are just starting to turn 40. Yeah. Another false start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, We do know also that Robin was close to his grandmother and that she died, Mm -hmm. right? But again, he was devastated, sure, and started acting out. But is that something that really leads us to what he would become later on? I don't know. It seems excessive, right? We do... Even... What people say in his like generally accepted biography, right, which is mm-hmm. that the death of the grandmother makes him have issues in school and that that ends up landing him in the school Montefiore um, also doesn't make any lot of sense. Do you know about Montefiore? No. Montefiore is the school that is designated for students who have behavioral and emotional disorders so severe that they can't be serviced in their neighborhood school. Okay. It has, at least amongst, like, Chicago social workers, a little bit of legendary status, okay? Uh It's actually located on the corner of, like, it's right off Roosevelt. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, Roosevelt and, like, Damon. Mm -hmm. It's this super nondescript building. You would never know what it is, but... For anyone really interested in knowing about what life in there is like, um, there's actually a Vice documentary that they did about Montefiore. Wow. And a little humble brag here, okay? <laughs> the social worker who trained me, okay, mm-hmm. uh, her name was Ms. Aguirre, okay? Mm-hmm. She actually is a social worker at Montefiore. Wow. Right? And she's amazing. 
the fact that he was sent to Montefiore actually means something because mm-hmm. you went to CPS, right? Yeah. It, it, going to CPS, you know, you have kids that are literally throwing chairs at kids, right? And oh. teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And principals, yes. right? That are not sent to Montefiore. If you're sent to Montefiore, that means that you, nothing could be done, right? Yeah. So it's super surprising to me that he was sent there, right? But what's even more surprising than that is that he got kicked out of Montefiore and then got sent to Schur's High School, which is at 3601 North Milwaukee. How that happened, I have no idea. But when he was there at Schur's, he became a fucking shop class star, which I think we know this kid, but I don't think that Gen Z does. Full disclosure, I have a much younger sister, right? And my much younger sister was just recently in high school, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why I asked her. I was like, hey, do you know what a shop kid is? She told me that she didn't know anyone who had ever taken shop, yeah. which was surprising to me, right? Mm-hmm. But for those of you out there who are of her generation, can you explain to us what a shop kid is? Well, yes and no, because I didn't have shop in high school. <laughs> But we did have botany. Okay, okay, okay. And I, I think that's kind of an analogous situation here. Um, botany was maybe the less expensive option for schools like mine who yeah. couldn't handle teenagers with sharp objects. Okay, okay. There was fighting in the hallways in my school. I don't think a chisel was going to fly, <laughs> right? So CPS used to have shop programs, mm-hmm. right? But the where I remember shop the most is I did go to Juliet mm-hmm. High School, Juliet Central and Juliet West. And in Juliet, our shop class was super desirable. So I don't know. Maybe it's because it was considered to be like job training or something like that. Yeah. But there was an idea. Okay, I... <sighs> Not to put too much of my own bio here, but I went to a lot of high schools, okay? Mm-hmm. And when I went to high school in Juliet, the kids who took shop and the kids who took auto were seen as being super cool because mm-hmm. there was an understanding that they were going to get really good paying jobs as soon as they left high school. That makes sense. It's Juliet. It's more blue collar. There's actually like jobs like that available. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm assuming... That that's kind of the Robin Gecht situation, Mm -hmm. okay? Because when he goes there, I mean, reading all the bios about him, that's like the one thing they talk about is that he did super well in shop class, right? And this kind of like sets him on the path that we're going to see for up to the point that he gets arrested, right? Yeah. So not only is this a skill that Robin uses to kind of become popular and gain friends and influence on others. <laughs> He's also going to use this skill later as an employee of John Wayne Gacy, reportedly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And later as an organized type serial killer in fashioning torture tools mm-hmm. that he would utilize in the van, including an axe that he would, trigger alert, reportedly also use as a dildo. Robin is going to high school, but all is not right at home during this time. Basically, there's too many people living in the house, and Robin, again, is a shitty human being. So, he's thrown out of the house at the age of 17 and went to live with a family friend who was openly gay. This fact is not important at all, but will be very important later on to J. Slade Fletcher. <laughs> uses this also as a subtle 
reminder that she thinks that all of this is because he's actually a closeted bisexual, right? This friend, though, does give us a hint as to what Robin was doing that got him caught. Meredith, do you want to take a guess as to what it was that he got caught doing that caused him to get kicked out of the house? I don't know. He was writing bad checks. He was what? Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm he was saying what, 17? 17, okay. I say this because, again, like, nothing makes sense when we talk about Robin Gecht, right? Including the fact that he was writing bad checks yeah. at the age of 17, right? Um, and, of course, you know, like, it's only natural that we want to kind of come up with a clean narrative for any of these murderers, yeah. right? That clean narrative, I think, almost makes us feel safer, right? Mm-hmm. But if this is probably more true to form that, you know, people are a little bit more obviously complicated, right? Yeah. All of this weird scattergraph, whatever, scattergram that we have for uh, Robin Gecht, we just kind of have to accept it as is, right? What else do we have to say about Robin? So, again, as J.S. Fletcher wants us to remember, he is a slight man. He was only 5'7", and he was only 130 pounds, okay? He was also remarked to have a wispy mustache and i will say that as a man with a robust beard i really should never talk about facial hair on men meredith i have my own opinions obviously but should people be worried about chicago men with wispy facial hair as far as i know (laughs) a man's ability to grow a robust mustache or full beard is not under his control yeah it's a roll of the genetic dice, yeah. right? I might venture to say that if a wispy mustache is unattractive on one specific face, that one might want to consider trying a clean-shaven look. But truly, my opinion does not matter. It's up to the person with that wispy hair to determine what style of facial hair makes them feel confident. I just always wonder, like, why? Like, why are you keeping that? You know, I think that's a really good question. And yeah. I would, like, if it's not somebody I'm familiar with, my first instinct is to think, like, oh, they're trying. They're trying it out yeah. to see, like, how much can they grow, right? Because you don't know until you try. That's true. Yeah. But also, I will say, like, I, I don't think that beyond high school I've known somebody who's, like, retained a wispy mustache. Okay, thank you for that. Right. Okay, so I, I've had a full beard since the age of, like, 15. So yeah. I don't know that struggle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But when I see people, you know, that are obviously struggling, mm-hmm. you know, I'm always like, why would you do that? You know, and, yeah. and if you look at a picture, you can look up pictures of Robin Gackson. You can see his mustache. It was... Yeah, it looked like someone kind of just like glued cotton balls to his face mm-hmm. and pulled them off quickly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. it was definitely a choice, an aesthetic choice that he made. For sure. Or maybe he just couldn't write another bad check to buy a safety razor. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, regardless of the facial hair and for all intents and purposes, he was a sick fuck. And he definitely had that supreme gentleman way of talking that definitely gets on my fucking nerves. How, how is that? Okay, so I have a report from the police that talked about interviewing him, right? Yeah. And according to police, he was that type of guy that would always try to act like one of the guys. But at any hint of an aggressive tone, would go into a very submissive stance, mm-hmm. almost as if he were a little kid. 
it was his defense mechanism. So the way that I hear it in my voice, it's kind of like the guy who's like, oh, wow, I can't believe you're upset about that. Hmm. When you read things that he, you know, like he, he's written in letters or that he's kind of like get done interviews, right? He does have this kind of very haughty way of talking. I, again, I've never sat down and spoken with him before, right? right? But it comes off to me as being the kind of guy who annoyingly kind of likes to amp things up and then kind of like let go so that Mm -hmm. you are kind of left being the one with your wheels spinning and they're like, why are you so upset all of a sudden? One of the things that they did say that when they were interviewing him about the murders, Mm -hmm. right, and trying to pin him to them, right, Mm -hmm. he would kind of make overtures as if he were about to confess Mm -hmm. and then would say that he would talk to you know, either Edward or, you know, Andy or whatever. And then as soon as they would bring him, them into the room with him, he would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. He also reportedly did this with murder sites. So when they would ask him, hey, you know, like we heard that this might be a place that a body was left. He would say, I'm not sure. We might have to go there to to see if my, my, my memory might be jogged. And when he would finally be taken out there, would say, Oh, no, I don't remember this. This just... He's just wasting everybody's time just to get his jollies. Wasting everyone's time. You know, when I say Supreme Gentleman, I'm also referring, of course, to the incel god. I don't know what you would call him, but he is the spree killer, Elliot Roger, who incels, many of you might know, uh, involuntary celibate men, praised as being kind of their true example the um, one true insult? <laughs> the one true insult. <laughs> I, I think that we all kind of know this person. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they, they annoy me to the level that they do. Maybe it's because, you know, we went to the University of Chicago and I feel like there were a lot of guys oh, that yeah. were like that, you know? I'm saying this also as a gay man, mm-hmm. right? So I, I don't know what your interaction is with guys like this. There were a lot of guys in college. This might be just at every college. They were just trying to show off. Yeah. They were using every $3 word that they read in high school. But it stopped right after college. Granted, I wasn't hanging out with those guys right after college. That was probably why it stopped. I don't know what happened to them. Yeah. When I would read things about Robin Gecht, Mm -hmm. I would really get that feeling that he was that type of person. Yeah, he never grew out of it. That he never grew out of it. Obviously, he was also, like, in his, he was a 30-year-old man hanging out with teenagers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Typical power move. That was, like, Gacy as well. It's like, I'm so old and blah, blah, blah. He's, like, 32, 36. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, again, like, we can't, we don't know who this person is, but he sounds like he was fucking annoying as all hell. Right? So before I go and smash this, you know, mug that you gave me some tea and Meredith out of frustration, let's move <laughs> on to someone else who will be very important to this. Uh, and that's Rosemary Gecht. Robin was married to a woman named Rosemary who sounded like a trip herself. Mm-hmm. According to police officers, she had long black hair and long bright red fingernails with Cleopatra eye makeup. 
she would do this weird move where she would lean forward and stare at you in your eyes, Mm -hmm. never blinking, and widen her eyes as if she were trying to put a, quote, spell on you, right? Mm. She 100% supported Get throughout this entire process, Mm -hmm. even though we know from reports that Get treated her like shit, right? And in fact, at the time of the arrest, she had already filed a petition for a divorce, but she retracted it after he was arrested. Yeah, they're still married. Yeah. Rosemary had met Robin when she was only 16 years old. He, this is not just Jade S. Fletcher talking. This is according to friends who knew Rosemary, and this is what Rosemary told them, (laughs) is that he used to have sex with her parents' family dog in front of her. Later, he'd move her to their 2163 North McVickers residence, and that's where shit would really pop off. According to their downstairs neighbor, Rosemary showed her her chest once, and foreshadowing here, she had all of these horrible cuts on her chest, many of which looked infected. Mm -hmm. Rosemary said that it was the only way that Robin could have sex with her, which is slicing her breasts with a razor Mm -hmm. supposedly he would also insert pins into her breasts and leave them in there so that he could fish them out later and that this was a very erotic experience for him he also would routinely inject her with painkillers because of the immense pain Mm -hmm. that her chest was always in so i mean this is just a fucking horrific image the neighbor said that you know she remembers hearing rosemary screaming in pain at night assumably from sex if it was consensual and rape if not obviously Mm -hmm. with robin but meredith can you please make this make sense i just i don't i don't i don't get it you know well i mean one thing's pretty clear is that rosemary did not come from a supportive loving family Right? Yeah. Teen girls make all sorts of bad romantic decisions as part of growing up. That's normal. Yeah. That's healthy. But for 16-year-old Rosemary to stay with Get and put up with his abuse through adulthood, through marriage, through children, has got to mean that whatever he was doing must have felt like love. <sighs> right? So that that's the only piece of information we have about what her life was before. That's not her fault. Yeah. But it did lock her into a nightmare that apparently, because they're still married, she hasn't woken up from. I know as a social worker, what you're saying makes sense. And it's just really hard to, obviously, I mean, I know you're struggling here too, right? You have (laughs) to be, right? (laughs) I mean, I've known, I've had friends who got trapped temporarily in abusive relationships. Nothing to this level as far as I know. Yeah. hard to let go even years later there's mental scars Um, i'm just fortunate enough to have not gotten trapped into one of those like psycho relationships yeah yeah because i was also a 16 year old girl once it could have happened to me totally happened to you yeah yeah um yeah some people are just so in the thick of it that they just can't get out of it or see another way to live Mm -hmm. well they, I know they had three kids, yeah. right? And supposedly, mm-hmm. they still live in Chicago. And I'm, 
I I remember mm-hmm. us having this conversation where you said that they also still have his name. His yeah. name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can Google them, but we shouldn't name the kids yeah. or the residents here. But there is one child that I do believe is fair game. He was born in 1980, a little bit older than we are. Yeah. Uh, and that is David Gett, who okay. is currently serving prison sentence for murder down in Pontiac. <laughs> He killed somebody back in 99. Oh, man. Okay, um, okay. And Robin Gecht is over at Menard, so there's no family reunion. This is sad. Oh. Uh, but Apple did not fall far from the tree really? there no. at all. Well, we also know that in addition to those three kids, he also allegedly had a child at 18 with a girl who left him with her child shortly after he was born. Mm-hmm. He also supposedly has another child with a waitress he met at Denny's mm-hmm. that he did some work at. Also, there were two other teenage girls who supposedly contacted Rosemary to say that they were pregnant with his child, which brings our grand total to six? Seven. Yeah. That's a lot of fucking kids. But, you know, I think, again, he was a 30-year-old man hanging out with teenagers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's it's amazing the type of long-term genetic impact you can have as a shitty human being by doing that. Yeah. And it's to the credit of, of the other young girls to have gotten out. Yeah. 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 Well... Okay, enough about Robert. Who's next? <laughs> oh, so the next person we have is Edward Spritzer, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward Spritzer lived at 5200 West Schubert Street with his mom and stepdad. This, again, is the Belmont Cragen neighborhood area mm-hmm. of Chicago. I do also think it's important to say here, having lived in Belmont Cragen, mm-hmm. that it is a no man's land. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that because it is not connected to any you know there's no train line that runs there and that's important okay because you know chicago is a place where you know the l is king right you want and the l for those of you who don't know is our train system okay Mm -hmm. when you live in belmont cragen you are kind of cut off from the rest of the city okay and I don't want to insult anyone from Belmont Cragen or any of my former friends or neighbors, right? But there is definitely kind of a weirdness that one starts to kind of, it starts to become part of them, right? Okay. Uh, when you are from Belmont Cragen. Is it right? like a small town atmosphere because they're so insulated? It's so insular. Yeah. You know? Back then, you really felt like you were cut off from the rest of civilization, yeah. right? So when we're talking about all these people and the fact they all live in this neighborhood, I think it's important that talking about Chicago as a character, as the background here, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who really didn't have a lot of their options, right? Yeah. Um, Eddie is the one that eventually is going to cave and give the testimony that puts him and the Cucurales brothers away. Not Gecht, though, okay? Mm-hmm. He gives us this information about Gecht because Gecht never does. Yeah. One thing that we're going to see, in, especially next week, when we go into the actual kind of murders and also him getting caught, Gecht never talks. Right. Never. So all the information we know about him legally is hearsay, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But he's the one that tells us and testifies that Robin would drug their victims beyond consciousness, sever their breasts to keep them as trophies, and then would have sex with the wound and later with the severed breast itself. 
He also took the police to the locations of the crimes when Robin would not. Like mm-hmm. I said before, Robin would kind of play this weird game of chicken with yeah. the cops and have them take him to places and then say that he magically forgot as soon as he got there. Yep. What gets Eddie into the mix with Robin? He's worked for him. We already said that. But it's the conversations about being powerful that get him ensnared into Robin's world. Yeah. And Eddie desperately wants to be important. Yeah. He's literally the monologue of every mafia movie protagonist at the beginning. And if it weren't so sick, it would just be sad. Meredith, I feel like we all know this person, especially here in Chicago. Yeah. This is the angry and disempowered neighbor who could have done something with their life (laughs) if everything hadn't been working against them. A hundred percent, yeah. This is the person who has it all figured out and who knows that they, with a capital T, are working behind the scenes to keep us regular folks down. Yeah. And it's not that there aren't systematic systems in place that genuinely make it hard for people to become successful, because obviously there are. But this is more of the lack of awareness of those systems. Yeah. Complete blindness to that. And a lack of inclination to find some way to create some small corner of joy in this world. Yeah. And so Eddie is known for basically just being a loser, Mm -hmm. right? Pause. I do want to say that none of this information is trying to say that the other three, because we're going to be talking about the brothers soon too, weren't Mm -hmm. guilty. They were, okay? And they're also horrible human beings for what they did. But arguably, none of this would have ever happened without Robin. Right. I was also struck by Fletcher's brutal description of Eddie's intelligence in Deadly yeah. Thrills, yeah. right? Yeah, she does not no. take any hostages here. No. <laughs> She's going in for the kill, yeah. Some of his grade school teacher's comments were included in the case records that Frank and I found in the archives up in 26th in California. Oh, shit. Okay. Again, this is like from a couple years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's up there? Let's go find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one teacher wrote, Eddie is a problem in the classroom. Have to cope with him patiently and do the best we can for him. Can't keep up with the rest of the class. Mother knows difficulty in learning. Has to understand he will never be a high achiever. Yeah. And we think that was about fifth grade. It seems that he kept advancing to the next grade because of his age, not because he had learned the material. Is, if that's not the Chicago public school way, I don't know what <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> At the end of the fifth grade, his teacher wrote, Edward was my problem child. If you don't expect him to do any work, he's fine. He did literally nothing unless someone was next to him encouraging him. Yeah. Sixth grade teacher went on to say, no attention span, no ability to work independently. So there's pretty clearly a learning disability here. Yeah. yeah. Right. And maybe a dangerously low IQ that made Eddie particularly susceptible to suggestion. Mm -hmm. Although we have to take Fletcher's version of events in Deadly Thrills with about a pint of salt, she repeatedly described Eddie as a genuinely stupid person. Yeah. If there's a grain of truth in there, it's that Eddie may have just as easily lived an uneventful life if he'd fallen under someone else's influence. Yeah. And considering his starring role in some of the murders and mutilations, that's horrible and sad for everyone involved. Yeah, he would have just become your your allegory of the guy who talks about how he could have become a contender. Again, we all know this person in Chicago. 
Yes. Right? They're um, usually at the dive bar. Yeah, they really are. And this is very much who Eddie was probably destined to become. Yeah. If we're honest here. And it was just by sheer fucking luck that he ended up finding someone like Robin who would see in him a yeah. potential victim. Right? Exactly. Because you know, I think that what we're going to see here, we, we already talked about Rosemary, mm-hmm. who was a victim that he found, right? Mm-hmm. He was able to identify her as being someone that he could easily manipulate yeah. and someone that he could, you know, do whatever he wanted to, mm-hmm. right? He does the same thing with Eddie. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about the Cocorales brothers. To me, the, these are the, the saddest. It's, it's hard because we yeah. both know also, and we're going to get into this next week, what they did, right? right. They did horrible fucking things, Okay. But these guys also are not playing with a full deck. And we mm-hmm. know that. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Cocorales brothers get caught up in this insane story because their sister was dating Eddie. And we'll get into that later. They lived with Robin Gecht at his house for some odd fucking reason on 2163 North McVickers after they left the family house at 917 West North Avenue in Villa Park. But do you want to tell us what Villa Park is? Right. Villa Park is a suburb in the northwestern quadrant of Chicagoland. Yeah. It is one of those areas where if you were a struggling white family, you would have moved out of the city limits and into Villa Park for a more affordable experience. Yeah. And Jonathan, we were talking a little bit earlier that there is an Ovaltine factory in Villa Park. It used to be there. Yeah. It used to be there. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be there. I wonder if it smelled like chocolate in the day. One can only hope. Oh, <laughs> um, so there were six Cocorala siblings total, okay? Mm-hmm. The mother evidently died when they were all very young, and they were raised by a single Greek immigrant father who worked as a butcher. Mm-hmm. According to all reports, the home was a fucking shit show, and the kids basically raised each other. Mm-hmm. They were a troubled family, to say the least, and were constantly getting into trouble with the law. Police said that if you heard that there was trouble in Villa Park, you could easily trace it back to the Cocorales family. The way that they paint the patriarch of this family is that he was basically, I don't know if I'm being racist here, but he kind of felt like the cheeseburger guy from SNL, the cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Oh, from Billy Goat. From the Billy Goat Tavern. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what he sounds like. Got it. Okay. You know, the the depictions that we hear from Deadly Thrills and also from media reports is that he was a very proud immigrant father Mm -hmm. who basically just did not know how to raise kids. Right. He, you know, was super hardworking and would go to work every fucking day. Mm -hmm. But he was probably one of those dads who went to work just so that he didn't have to be home with the kids. Right. And back at home, things were not great. One of the things that we do know is that the sister who evidently dated Eddie Spritzer also claimed, according to a Child Protective Services report, that the dad was sexually abusing her. Mm -hmm. However... She later recanted, and there was no evidence that it actually happened. So, again, we don't know, you know, what brush to use to paint, you know, Mr. Corcoralis, right? Was he just kind of this immigrant father who was caught up by the circumstances and the untimely death of his wife and just could not control six kids? Mm -hmm. Or was he maybe a monster? We don't know, Mm -hmm. okay? But what we do know is that Andy and Tommy can't tell us anything because 
they're dumb. I'm saying that like not just as like a, a pejorative way here. Yeah. They have intellectual disabilities. Yeah. Okay. Now, when the police go and knock on Andy's door to ask, hey, do you know anything about these crimes, right? We think that you might be involved in in some of these murders. Mm-hmm. His response to them is, oh, you mean all 18? He did not even know that what he had done was something bad. Yeah. Okay? I think something that was written about in Deadly Thrills that, I don't know, it, it made me emotional, but we've talked about how I'm always <laughs> struggling with like these like feelings of sympathy, right, mm-hmm. for like serial killers. But it was reported that he really had a thing for large breasts, mm-hmm. but not, not in the way that we're going to see later on, okay? In a way that a lot of people, a lot of women reported that he just liked to lay on their chests mm-hmm. and fall asleep, right? Right. And, you know, and the social worker in me says he lost his mom. Yeah. Right. He didn't have like a, a nurturing female figure. Yeah. Yeah. But reality is that he was also not a good person. Mm-hmm. Tommy, his brother, is even dumber. He has an IQ of 77 and is 21 at the time of the arrest. When we hear about his participation in these crimes, it's really like you're reading about Lenny from Of Mice and Men. But it's from Tommy that we get the real foundations for the satanic panic. Let me explain, okay? Because Tommy is where we get a lot of the most sensationalized details, Mm -hmm. okay? That are then going to really be the fodder for the satanic panic that I know we're going to talk about next week. We don't know if we can really believe these details, though, because, again... He has an IQ of 77, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. He's the one that tells us about the boob altar, Mm -hmm. right? Which there's never been any evidence that the boob altar itself has existed, right? Mm -hmm. He said that they would read from a satanic Bible, masturbate onto the boob, and then eat from it. Mm -hmm. What that means is up to anyone's interpretation, okay? Because... We don't, when we're talking about Tommy's version of events, we really have to think of it as if it's coming from a 10-year-old kid. Right. Right? The fact that he was even put into these situations really shows what a monster Robin Gecht was. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that... Again, I'm going to give you another another place where I feel conflicted because it made me feel really sad for him. Okay? Mm -hmm. When the police asked him about his involvement he told them be careful when you look into robin's eyes mister because whatever he tells you to do you have to do it Mm -hmm. this is a 20 year old man yeah okay you know i know that in our subsequent kind of like reading about him and the state knows that he is intellectually deficient okay what they were doing i have a hard time thinking that he had the full intellectual wherewithal to fully understand what was happening, okay? Yeah. And I don't think he's lying when he's saying that he felt like when Robin Gatch looked him into his eyes that he was under a spell. Mm-hmm. <sighs> now, what Robin tells Tommy and Andy to do is probably one of the most disgusting 
and vile crimes ever to happen in Chicago history mm-hmm. and would unleash 18 months of pure terror for Chicago's women. All of which we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> but basically what yeah. we're doing in this episode and what we just did mm-hmm. is we gave the foundation. We talked about who these people are. Again, these crimes are so vile that sometimes we forget that actual human beings committed them, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really important that we get this. And I can even say that for myself, having known about this, having done this research, I really do feel like I have a new level of understanding of how this actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. To take it out of that realm of myth, right? right. And put it back into reality where it belongs, right. you know? Because people love to sensationalize things, especially with the satanic panic and yeah. like, oh, there are powers involved or even the belief of powers. And really what we're seeing here is one really sick guy who was able to manage and handle three kind of not so bright guys. <sighs> yeah. And then they went merrily along the road to to a very dark path. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Robin is the ringleader, although, of course, he had never admitted to anything, letting yeah. the other three take the fall. But again, that's the road we will travel next time. All right. So looking forward to our conversation next week, where we're also going to have a surprise guest. Surprise guest! <laughs> To help talk to us a little bit about the satanic panic. So next week, uh, we will be going into the 18 murders that the Ripper crew committed and then talking a little bit about that impact that they left, not only for the city of Chicago, but also nationwide because... Again, they created the basis for the satanic panic Mm -hmm. through a lot of this testimony, problematic testimony. But we're going to also see that that's not necessarily something that is uh, foreign to the satanic panic, which is unreliable testimony from children or people with the mindset or psychology of children that are giving unreliable information that is then being used to create a Salem witch trial of sorts. So, Yeah. Yeah. Did you see I gave you my satanic mug? Uh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I did see. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is The Original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, a deep dish of death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath 
at gmail.com.